So take your copy of God's Word and turn to Revelation chapter 6. According to um, Open Doors International, there are, as you can see on the screen there, this is, um, I took from their website uh, early this morning, 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month, according to Open Doors. Included in that is, is the persecution and the violence that takes place against their places of worship, against their property, and against their homes when they meet in house churches. 214 per month there. And that doesn't count the 722, between seven and 800, depending on which website you look at. Those acts of violence, those acts of persecution that go against the people of faith around the world. And this happens in countries all across our globe. We are so insulated from it here in the United States that we lose sight of it. We don't think about it much. We don't think about the persecution of brothers and sisters in Christ in places like North Korea. We can't even hear about that. And yet it is consistently over the years ranked as the number one oppressor of Christianity, the number one persecuting government. There in North Korea or in Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran or Tajikistan or any of these Central Asian Asian countries, India, China, Vietnam, Laos. We don't think about these places. And yet the book of Revelation was written for people who are enduring this, for people who are going through these kinds of situations. I read this week about a lady named Amina. She is one of the many thousands of persecuted Christians in the country of Nigeria. Most of that persecution at the current time comes through the insurrectionist group Boko Haram, this radical Islamist group of terrorists. Amina and her husband Daniel and their five children, four sons and a daughter, were in their living room one night just watching TV, trying to stay cool in what she says with a 98 degree temperature at night. The front door, or excuse me, the gate outside their compound, they heard someone pounding on the gate. And just as Daniel, her husband, went out to see who was at the gate, Boko Haram fighters broke through the wall, broke through the gate, came into the house. They demanded that the men, Daniel and his four sons, lay on the floor where they tied their hands behind their backs. And while they were ranting and raving, they demanded their papers, their money, their car keys. They took all the clothes. Amina says even the children's clothes they took. And then one of them said to her husband, today is your day. Tomorrow is not yours. And they took them out in the front yard. And while she watched, put a gun to the back of her husband's head and pulled the trigger. And then while she watched, they walked over and stood over her two oldest sons and slit their throats from ear to ear. And then they left. She knew, she says, that her husband was dead. But there was still a pulse. There was still blood flowing from her sons. And a neighbor had heard the commotion and instead of running away came and miraculously those two sons survived. There's a picture. And they have this scar. And she said, for the longest time, they were ashamed of that scar. Because it was so visible, it was so evident for everyone to see. And then later, she said, we came to understand that it's a testimony. This, ev- this scar, she says, and I quote, is the evidence of God's existence and his faithfulness. 
But Boko Haram wasn't finished with her. Five years later, she is in a van traveling with a group from her church where she's actively involved to a funeral. There are 15 of them in the van, the driver and four other men and all the women. All of a sudden, bullets start raining in on the van. All of them hit the floorboard, she says. By the time the shooting was over, all of the men had been killed and all of the women had been kidnapped. She had been shot three times. She was drug into the woods of northern Nigeria, and she says they were so ensconced there, they were, there was such a community there, she said, that they operated on me and took the three bullets out of me and then kept me there as they were kidnapped. She said every day the imam would come in and preach to them from the Koran and give them opportunities to deny their faith in Christ, to confess that Muhammad, that Allah is the one true God. And he said we were, she said we were promised that if we would denounce Christ, they would take us, give us to their people, we would be one of their women and we would have freedom. And all of those women hung together worshiped together, fasted together, prayed together during those weeks that they were in captivity. Finally, the government negotiated their release. Here's what she says. I thank God that I knew the Bible and that the Bible did not hide anything from us about persecution, knowing that it can happen any time. She said a Christian should not be afraid. The book of Revelation was written for Amina. The book of Revelation was written, as we've talked about before, not so that our imaginations will be spurred with these crazy visions of what might or might not take place in the future, but that we will have confidence and peace and security for today. The letter of Revelation, as we saw in the letters to the seven churches, was written to spur them on to faithfulness and obedience and to avoid at all cost compromise with the emperor-worshipping, idolatry-exalting culture around us. And the book of Revelation can be seen through the lenses of those seven letters to those seven churches. One writer said this, God gave us Revelation to challenge our temporal obsession." our earthly perspective of this world. Revelation lifts our eyes beyond political powers, pandemics, elections, and economic crises to spiritual realities. It lifts our eyes to principalities and powers and the Christ who rules over them all. Revelation confronts our preoccupation with the immediate and reminds us that the most important and defining features of our world are unseen. And by diagnosing our primary problem as outside of this realm, Revelation reminds us that our ultimate hope lies in someone who has overcome, can overcome spiritual powers that lie beyond this world, behind this world's brokenness and corruption. That's, that's the purpose of Revelation. Now, what is the theme? Well, Von Polythris put it in this phrase, praise the Lord, cheer the saints, detest the beast, and long for victory. That's kind of pretty good cheer, all right? Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for final victory. But it's, it's really more than that. God is in full control. Christ is on the throne. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. He will bring justice into this world. And one day, God will recreate 
and bring about a new heavens and a new earth better than Genesis. And that world will be populated by God's new people, those that he has redeemed from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That's that's what the theme of Revelation is. It's it's we win. Jesus wins and we win with him. Right. That's that's it. Now, the pattern of Revelation is the pattern that Jesus gives us. And I want you to turn back to Matthew 24. We looked at this last week. I want to look at it again for just a second as we get into today's text. Matthew chapter 24. And and I think what I've come to understand um, is a, a critical key to me, and, and I think it's helpful, I've, I've read this in several places, to understanding Jesus' understanding and Jesus' teaching about these, these apocalyptic visions, this, this end times vision that Jesus gives us both in Matthew 24 and what we have in Revelation. A key to understanding that comes later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 30, in verse 36, where Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. And then he says in verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he goes on to give more distinction there. So there's this pattern, recurring pattern over human history that is escalating, if you will, building to this climax that comes later on in the book of Revelation. And I think that is helpful for us. I think that gives us a pattern, recurring patterns of the proclamation of God's Word, the rejection of that Word, of judgment and wrath being poured out. Of repentance and turning back to God. And in the same cycle again, it goes over and over and over, all throughout redemptive history. But it's moving toward, okay, crescendoing toward this amazing end that we see beginning to unfold in the book of Revelation. And we'll see more of that today, even as it looks forward to what the Scriptures calls that great day. That great day. What do you think that sentence would end with? That great day. Well, it's that great day of God's wrath. That great day of God's wrath. So that's the the pattern that Jesus gives us. Now, the context for where we're at in Revelation 6, and I'm not going to go back and do it all again, but just, just remember, John was given this open door into heaven. He was given this opportunity to look up into heaven and to show the things that must soon take place. And then we begin to get this picture. And this, this book of Revelation that is so often misunderstood, and I, I say it again, I think we just try to make it more complicated than it is. It's a letter first off. And those seven churches who received this letter listened as someone stood up and read it completely to them. And it was a letter read to them to encourage them and challenge them to give them comfort and, and to give them purpose to, to strengthen their resolve. And so that letter was read. And these seven churches received that. Some, I'm sure, were shocked at the commendation that they got. They didn't know they were doing that great. Others were shocked at the condemnation that they received. 
as Jesus is calling them out for various things. All of those things end up being centered on, I think, leaving our first love and putting that affection someplace else, compromising and being willing to walk with the world instead of walking with Christ. And he calls them out on that. And then we come to chapter 4 and 5 where this, this door of heaven is open for us and we see the very throne room of God. We see this place described. We've kind of sung about it some this morning. And we hear these songs, five songs repeated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created in chapter four. God, the creator, God, the sovereign creator who created it and sustains it is being worshipped. And then in chapter five, the attention turns to this one who stands there. And John says he turns and he and he sees there between the throne a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The one who was announced was what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and he doesn't see a lion. He sees the lamb. Standing that had been slain. And he takes the scroll because he's the only one worthy. And in chapter 6, the scroll, the scroll begins to be unsealed. And in a progressive manner, it seems, as each one of those seals is opened, we see something else unfolding. And so today we come to the fifth and the sixth seal. And I'll begin reading in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9. All right, so follow along with me. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Lost my place there. Hang on just a second. There it is. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. (laughs) Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So we've seen these four horsemen. I didn't read the passage, but the four horsemen, as as they've been called, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, come riding out of heaven as they are given permission, remember that, given permission to do so. The lamb who was slain, who stands with full authority, gives them permission to to begin riding out. And their hoofbeats come. And with them, as we saw last week, comes deception and war and famine and death. 
And, it, it, and, and while they seem to be progressive, they go together. That's one of the reasons why, as we saw last week, I don't, I don't think this white horse is the one we see later in Revelation 19 with Jesus on it. This is the deceiver. And he comes riding out on this white horse, deceiving. And with him then comes next this red horse and its rider, bringing this great sword, removing peace and bringing war. And then next comes what follows on the footsteps of war every time it breaks out someplace, which is famine. And that famine comes and economic oppression comes and people aren't able to support their families and work for a living because of what the war has done. And then with that famine then comes death. This pale horse and its rider comes with hell or Hades following with it. And there one fourth of the world, one fourth of the world is lost One-fourth of the world is taken through famine and pestilence and war and beast. And then this fifth seal comes. And in this fifth seal, all of a sudden, the focus has changed again. And we look back up into heaven and notice what we see. When he opened that fifth seal, he looks under the altar. He sees there under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. While deception and war and famine and death have rolled across the globe and wreaked havoc on all of humanity, listen, the believers have not been immune to that. I don't believe that is what we see in the book of Revelation. I'll talk more about that later on as we move through. But I'll tell you, I don't see any scriptural substantiation for the idea that the church is going to be raptured out before the Great Tribulation. That is not consistent with the regular theme of scripture. That is not consistent with the pattern we see in Jesus. And that is not even what I believe Thessalonians teaches. And we can talk more about that. But what we see here is that these pestilences, these wars and all these things have come out. And what exactly what was intended for evil has been has brought about good. Wait a minute. What's good, Gerald? They're before the throne. They've been slain. They've been slaughtered. It says there he saw them as they've been slain. And there's a comparison there that it's important to see. It's the same word, the same word used to describe them that's used three times in Revelation five to describe Jesus. To describe the lamb that was slain or slaughtered. It's the same word. Because those who follow Christ, follow Christ. Follow Christ in the path of the cross. Follow Christ in the path of suffering. Follow Christ the same way he got to glory is the way his followers get to glory. It's it's the way of the cross. It's the way of the suffering. And so they are compared with him. They are, there's a clear comparison there that I think is important. There they are, slain. There they are, in the very presence of God, underneath the altar. There's debate. Are they talking about the altar of incense? Or are they talking about the altar of burnt offerings as we look at the pattern of the earthly tabernacle? What are they talking about there? If it is the altar of incense, perhaps it's their lives That have been offered up as this pleasing aroma to God. If it is the altar of burnt offerings, well, they have offered themselves as a a living and dying sacrifice, right? I don't think it matters. I think either way, they are in the presence of God. They are there in God's presence. They are there being comforted. They are there being protected. And notice that they are there for a reason. They are there because they stood up for Jesus. 
They stood up for the faith. They held on to the gospel. They are under the altar because they have been like those in Sardis in Revelation 2, faithful unto death. They have stood for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. Notice that they are recognized because they stood on God's word. While the world demanded a different standard, while the world said there's a different way, while the world said this is the way it needs to be and should be, they stood upon the word of God. And it was for them costly. They stood for Christ in his gospel. I think that's what it means when it said for the witness that they bore. I think the witness is not so much they stand up and give their own testimony. That may have been a part of it. But the witness they bore was a witness to the lamb, right? A a witness to the gospel. A witness to the one who is now being worshipped. I think that's the witness that they're called to account for. Folks don't mind hearing our good stories about how our life is turned around until we point to Jesus. And when we point to Jesus, and when we bring this this picture of God into it, watch for the change in the response. There'll be a difference. People love to hear how our lives are better. They don't necessarily like to hear why they're better. And when they stood up for the witness of Christ in his gospel, it cost them. And one of the repeated themes throughout the New Testament, and it's very important that we remember this, it's important that we remember this as American Christians, because if we don't remind ourselves of it, we'll be surprised when it happens. That the people of God are called to be a people of martyrs. That does not necessarily mean we will be called to lay down our life's blood, but we are called to lay down our lives. We are called to be crucified daily, to die to self daily. And that's the picture that we have throughout the New Testament. And so when Jesus said that a man must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me in Matthew 10 and later on in Matthew 16, he wasn't talking about self-denial. And he wasn't talking about the burdens that we carry in this life. He wasn't talking about the cross that we bury being an unbelieving husband or difficult children Or a mean boss. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he meant take up your means of execution. Take up the means of martyrdom. And that's all the cross is. It's nothing else but that. And every disciple of Jesus understood that my path with you will lead to some form of martyrdom. Some form of death. Because it's in death that we live. It's in dying that we are brought to life. It's through what the world sees as defeat that we are proclaimed to be conquerors and victors. That's what we see here. So there they are, standing before the, or there under the altar, being comforted, led, encouraged, and they're there because they've stood up for the gospel. They've stood up for the word. They've stood up with their witness. And there they are, and we hear them crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? This is the only prayer of supplication, the only prayer like this that you'll find in the book of Revelation. It's the only one. And notice that that their cry is not for raw vengeance. That's not what they're praying for. Paul tells us that it's up to the Lord to provide that, right? It's not ours to seek vengeance. We're to trust God in that. But they're crying out for God to demonstrate his character. 
And they pray accordingly. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Sovereign Lord. And, and the phraseology there, the way it's, 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 it's a slave responding to his master, if you will. You have complete control of my life. You did in life, you do in death. You do here. And I'm, I'm pleading to you. I'm crying out to you, sovereign Lord. I'm crying out to you based upon your character, that you are holy, that you cannot and will not let evil go unpunished, that you cannot and will not turn a blind eye to injustice, that you cannot and will not let our deaths go unanswered. He cannot and he will not. Because he is holy and he will do it rightly. He will do it the way it should be done because he is true. His is the perfect standard of truth and righteousness and it cannot be compromised. And so they're praying to the God who is to the only God who is holy and true and sovereign and saying, God, how long? How long? You ever prayed that? <laughs> Maybe you've not voiced it verbally, but how long? How long? I wonder how did Amina there in northern Nigeria? How long? Week after week. How long? That's what they cry out. How long before you act on behalf of your own? And notice it says against those who are dwell on the earth. These earth dwellers. That's the phrase we'll see over and over and over in Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth as opposed to those who dwell in heaven. And it's this picture of those who have rebelled and rejected the Lamb. That's, that's what that means in the book of Revelation. How long before you judge? How long before we see your justice? It's the same thing the psalmist said in Psalm 74. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. What kind of prayer is that for loving Christians to pray to a loving God? It is the God who is holy and true, whom we can trust, and whom we can call on to exercise those characteristics on behalf of his own glory and the good of his people. And there they go. They cry out. And what's the answer? Well, they don't get one right there. They don't get an answer. And we, how often do we not? They get no answer. But here's what they do get. They get God's commendation. They get God's reward. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So here's what's amazing about this. The world said you are guilty, not worthy to live and took their lives. The Lord said, you are righteous. You are mine. And they receive a reward. Do you see the, the, the paradox in that? Do you see what it means to die here and live there? Do you see what it means to gain the praise and, a, and, and, and commendation of men here that means nothing? And instead to gain it there? So there they are in the presence of God. And I think this white robe that they receive is significant. It is throughout the book of Revelation. But it connotes the idea of purity. We understand that. We, I think we recognize that. But what is the purpose of suffering and persecution for the people of God? But to refine us and make us pure. 
Yeah, we receive the righteousness of Christ, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We receive his whiteness, his, his righteousness, if you will, that picture of that robe. But we also are producing that through our persevering faith. God is doing that in us, this refining fire of tribulation. It's what he told the people in Sardis again. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This doesn't say so in Revelation 6. But I believe Jesus is calling out the names of every one of those saints. He knows their names and he's calling that name out before his father as they receive that white robe. This is John. This is Daniel. This is David. This is Jane. These are those who stood for your word, Father. They stood for the testimony of the gospel. And now they are clothed in my righteousness and their faith has been refined through the flames of persecution the trials that they've walked through. And God's response is to validate them. I think that's what the robe is. And it's this picture of assurance for us. It's for us. It's for the family of Nate Saint. It's for the family of Jim Elliott. It's for the family of those countless millions who have gone before us and have shed their blood for the gospel, shed their blood for Christ. And it's our assurance that it was worth it for them, and it will be worth it for us. It will be worth it for us. He he declares this in giving them this robe. It's a heavenly declaration, if you will. And they get their robes of righteousness. They get rest. They get the assurance. And look at what they get assured of. That they're not the last. They are not the last. Rest a little longer, they're told. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there is an eternal purpose in the death of the saints. Polycarp, one of the first martyrs, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. And the more the Romans tried to squash them out, the more they multiplied. It happened in China. It's happening now around the world. And that number is not complete, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. One of the ways that we know who is and is not is by who makes it and who does not. Who holds to the faith and who lets go. Who stands for the word instead of laying it aside and going the way of the world. Matthew said, Jesus said, that will happen. Daniel looks forward to this in in that way that Daniel does in Daniel chapter 7. He looks ahead to this tribulation, to these persecutions, to this death. It looks ahead to Revelation chapter 13. Turn there for just a second. I'm not going to take a lot of time in Daniel. Goodness knows I'm not going to take long in it. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees this incredible vision of these four beasts coming up out of the great sea. Four strange and terrible beasts. In the midst of this, he has this vision in verse 9 
of the throne room of God. We looked at that in Revelation 5 and 4. The Ancient of Days took his seat. And then later on, we see one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. And to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But that's not the end. There is still more. There is still turmoil. There's still all kinds of things going on. And, and, and just so down in verse 23. Actually, up in 21, he says, as I look, this horn, he sees these beasts come up with these horns. OK, ten horns were on its head and 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 the other horn that came up and before each of the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and it spoke great things and it seemed greater than its companions. And this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, it says in verse 21, until I'm glad that's there until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus as it was, he said, for this fourth beast, there shall come forth a kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample down and break it into pieces. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise from them, and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down the other three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. There'd be radical change fundamental changes in truth and the way people see truth, it says there in verse 25. Wow, it sounds familiar. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a times. But then it goes on and it says, But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. We have seen nothing yet as to what will be seen when this one comes about, when this one comes from these ten kings and, and this one king. And he will wear out the saints, it says. It will seem like they're just being stomped and defeated. But there's a set number to that, right? Until that number is fulfilled... For those who must lay down their lives, that number is established. And, and until then, it's going to be a hard journey. And Jesus says, if those, days, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, they are cut short. As, it, as strange as it seems, this is God's way to propagate the gospel. As strange as it seems, this is the way he's growing his kingdom. Not by military might. Not by political dominion. Not by having the right guy in the right office at the right time. That's not, that's not the picture we see. It's a strange way to reach the world and grow the kingdom. But that's exactly what Jesus said in John 12. I tell you, he said, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It started with Stephen. He was the first one to sow the seeds of his blood for the sake of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews gives us account after account. Some were tortured, it says in Hebrews 11.35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in sheep, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I love verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wow. Later on, 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They were commended for their faith, he says. They received what was promised. We won't be left out of that. But the path to that is hard. It's not easy. So as we look at these under the throne, I couldn't help but think about them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and revile you, he said, and accuse you falsely for all kinds of evil because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, he said. For, that, for thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's our promise, church. That's our promise. If we will be like those churches that were commended for their lack of compromise, if we will be like those believers who stand on the word and stand on the witness of the gospel, if we are like those who are faithful in that walk, we will be called to martyrdom. And it may be our blood. It may be our reputation. It may be our relationships with our friends. It may be that promotion that we couldn't get without cheating. It may be that raise that we couldn't get without compromising somewhere. It may be that loneliness because we cannot go with the world. It could be any form of dying to self. But that's the call that we have. And we're just told that one day, I don't know how long, In Revelation 19, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. What are they singing about? Well, it says, For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will do it. But not. Yet. Not yet. I think what we see in the next seal, however, is part of their answer. I think that's part of what we see. And I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. Just let's just read it with me. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. So in that in that first seal, we see this these these martyrs there before the throne. And the great word of commendation that they receive and this promise of more to come that are going to be called to the same account, called to that same sacrifice. But here's this great day of wrath, and it's a universe shattering day. It's like nothing no one has ever seen. There will be no place to run, no place to hide. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became as blood. The stars fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the the wrath of the Lamb... For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There's, there's a couple of things to point out there in verse 16 and 17. 
Notice how the lamb and the one seated on the throne are equated. Hide us from the face of him who is seated and from the wrath of the lamb. We talked about this a little last week. We'll see it unfolding before us. A a lamb is nothing to quake at, I don't think. I mean, we don't really get afraid of those little white fuzzy things that got eh. It doesn't seem to be there's much there to be afraid of. But in this, these people are praying for death by any means other than from that lamb's wrath. By any means other than that. So they're equated as being on the throne. They're equated for this judgment, this great day of wrath that has come. The lamb and the one seated on their throne are equated that no one can stand before them. There's no doubt here about the authority. There's no doubt about who is God. And those crying out for justice and for their blood to be avenged are getting an answer, right? They're getting an answer. And this sixth seal is going to be a key, I think, to the rest of the book. We're going to see it unfold. And it's kind of like we got in the book of Genesis, right? There's an account of Revelation in chapter... I mean, there's an account in Genesis of creation in chapter 1. And then there's another account in chapter 2 that goes into a little more detail. Gives us a little more understanding about what happened. We'll see the same thing in Revelation with this great day of wrath. Here it's unfolded for us to some degree. Later on we'll see it unfold a little more. And then it'll circle back around and give us more detail later on. And church, this is not God mildly agitated. This is not Him annoyed with with the earth. This is not him a little bent out of shape over our bad behavior. It's none of those things. It is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. That's what Paul says in Revelation 1.18. But wait a minute. He says that today. He says the wrath of God is being revealed. And it is every day in ways and means that we do not see. But when it comes, this great day of wrath, that the prophets over and over and over looked forward to, it will not be missed. It will not be secret. It says in Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power or by his powerful word. So that word that spoke this universe into existence and holds it together will speak its disillusion. It will speak its destruction will speak its collapse. He holds it together now by his word, and by his word it will crumble and fall. I take this very, I think it's exactly what we'll see happen. Joel said, alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near in chapter 1. In chapter 2 he said, the day of the Lord is coming. In Amos chapter 9, there's a long passage there. I'm not going to take the time to read it. I would encourage you to go to Amos chapter 9 and read that. And basically it boils down to this. What we see happening here is all of the joys and all of the advantages and all of the political power and all of the prestige and all of the wealth and all of the rank will be worthless on that day. It will mean absolutely nothing. Nothing. No political power will protect. No corporate position will put you in a place of refuge. No money will buy our way out of it. Everyone, slave and free, every human being is included in this. And, and you know, we, we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've heard that, right? 
Well, this ground will be too. There will be no distinction there between wealth and poverty, between haves and haves not. There will be no distinction here between those of power and those of no ability. No distinction between those who are free and those who are slaves. The only distinction that we're going to see in the book of Revelation is those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And those who don't. And that's what we're going to see unfolding as we make our way. There's going to be an interlude here in chapter 7. It's a beautiful, beautiful interlude. And then we're going to get to the seventh seal, which leads in to the bowls that are going to be poured out. Let's think about a couple of applications of this as we finish up. This great day is coming. Okay, it's not here yet. This, this great day of wrath is coming, which means this. Until then, we have days of opportunity. What one, what one preacher called days of amnesty. These are days of amnesty. We have an opportunity now. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And while these kings and princes and generals and slave and free and everyone prays for the mountains, they're literally praying that the mountains would fall on them and kill them rather than for the Lamb's wrath to touch them. And then there'll be no place to run. Now there is. Now there's a place to hide. Now there's a place to come. Jason read this for you at the beginning. Second Peter chapter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the day that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is his one day. Those under the throne were told, just wait a little while. Well, how long is a little while? <laughs> well, in God's timing, it's a little while. I don't know from our perspective. But here we can be thankful that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And until that great day comes, it is a time for God to continue to be patient toward you. Not wishing that you should perish, but instead wishing that you would come to repentance. Would you? Would you while you have the opportunity? Because that day is coming, Peter said, like a thief. And the heavens will pass away and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth has never seen anything like it. And when this day comes, there won't be an opportunity. Today is the day. And this lamb who was slain was slain for those who would put their faith and trust him. He was slain for you. His righteousness can be yours. His purity yours. His strength and his life that came up out of the grave can be yours. And you don't have to be afraid of what we're reading about here. As frightening as it is, that's opportunity for you today. For the church, this great day coming means that days like today, until that day, are days for us to live differently. Differently. That's what Peter said next. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And he answers that. You're to be people who live lives of holiness and godliness. That's the call to us, church, in the light of this great day of wrath that's coming, is to walk lives of holiness and godliness. On my bike, I don't have any difficulty knowing when I'm riding into a headwind. Okay? I don't have any trouble knowing when I'm in a headwind. Things get hard. 
And I would submit to you that in our Christian walk, if we're not walking against the headwind, we may not be walking in the right direction. And one of the things that I've really been meditating on and thinking about this is, is, is why, and I know, it's, I know it's ramping up in our culture. I know it's different now than it was even ten years ago. But because we see things differently than the world does, and because we're to live differently than the world does, we are not to expect the world to affirm that. Right? We are not to expect the world to pat us on the back and tell us what good people we are. And in that sense, the more we are walking with Christ, the more we will begin to taste and experience just a little bit, at least for now, what it is these people did when they stood on the word of God and held firm to the testimony. And I I just in my own life and I fear in many other lives that I'm not sure I'm experiencing any rejection or any discomfort or any problem. And maybe that is because I'm not walking in a, in a way that others see is contrary to the ways of the world. And maybe what I'm saying doesn't sound different. And maybe what I'm affirming and liking isn't any different from the world. Are we experiencing any rejection or discomfort, any trials or difficulty for our faith? Is there any difference? If not, why? Huh? Why? So, it's just, a, it's just a consideration for us to think about. It's something, something for us to consider. That the way to glory is the way of the cross. And the call of Christ is to take up our cross daily. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are worthy and you alone are worthy to have glory and power and dominion. For you shed your blood, and by that shed blood you have ransomed people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that includes many in this room, Lord, and we're thankful for that. So we do pray if there's someone who has never trusted you that they would do that today. They turn, Lord, just a a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are what the Bible says. I believe that you are the one who laid down his life. You are the one who lived perfectly in fulfillment of the law. And I have not. And I deserve this wrath. And I thank you that you took that wrath on the cross and offer to those who will trust in you your life, your resurrection. Father, I pray that someone today would just simply quietly confess their sin, repent of it, and turn and trust Jesus. Lord, I pray that we as a church, Father, would have our eyes fixed on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured, endured. Father, show us where we compromise. Show us where we're too quiet. Show us where we're too complacent. And thank you that you've already shown us that when we are weak, you are strong. And that when we are called to account, you'll give us the words. And that the life that lives in us is the life that conquered sin, death, and the grave. Help us live accordingly, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.